Enterprise Management 360, your main source for tech news, analysis, podcasts, and videos for the enterprise. Hello and welcome to the EM360 podcast, where we have a weekly conversation with people who are impacting the enterprise tech landscape. My name is Matt Harris, Head of Content here at EM360 and your host on today's episode. Now today I'm joined by Mike Bollinger, VP of Strategic Initiatives at Cornerstone, and we're here to talk about working in the age of generative AI. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, me too, mate. Me too. Um, Just for those who don't already know who you are, could you just give our audience a little bit of background on who you are and what you do? Sure. Um, I've been in the industry about 25 years, and I do at the moment run the Cornerstone People Research Lab as part of my remit. Um, I've worked for a variety of organizations, but I've been at Cornerstone for a little over eight years. Uh, Way back in my past, I was also a former CIO in an education setting. So, uh, this is an area of keen interest for me. Yeah, and that, that area, of course, being generative AI. And for those who may have, you know, completely missed the, the meteoric rise um, in these AIs like ChatGPT and stuff like this, could you just explain um, to, to, you know, the average person what's been happening in the last six months and sure. how we got to where we are today? The, the last six months has kind of been a whirlwind for generative AI. And the torchbearer, if you will, is ChatGPT. And it even reached 100 million users in just two months. And according to analysts, that's the fastest ramp in consumer internet history, except maybe Pokemon Go, which I think did it in 30 days. So um, OpenAI, which is has been funded by uh, Microsoft and a few other funding sources, created this notion of GP, chat GPT, a chat bot using a large language model. And they just released 4.0, which actually can pass the American bar exam at an estimated 90%. Um, It can create recipes from a picture of the inside of a fridge and code a website within minutes. So although it it may seem like it, it's not really an overnight sensation, although it's reached that level for us now. It's been derived from years and years of research. Deep learning itself took off in 2012, and the first instantiation of a learning chatbot was actually in 2016, Microsoft Tay. Now, the Microsoft Tay model interacted with users via Twitter, facilitating a Q&A type experience over the web, and users began to teach it inappropriate things, and the bot eventually produced racist, politically incorrect, and other offensive messages, and Microsoft shut it down in 16 hours after it was released. So you've got this this notion of AI chatbots, you've got deep learning. We're in the, the fourth iteration now of AI models, and they're known as transformer models. A um, little bit of tech here, it's defined as a type of a neural network, artificial neural network, that's used to solve problems of transforming input into output sequences in deep learning applications. The idea of a transformer model was introduced in 2017 by a team at Google Brain. Turns out transformer models are able to adapt other tasks pretty quickly, and um, they worked really well in language-related tasks. So they quickly became useful for other tasks, ranging from video to audio and music, and then playing chess and doing math. I'll send you a chronological link of that development for later, Matt. So chat GPT is a specific instantiation or use of a transformer model, and um, there are many others that are emerging. So 
these transformers do parallel processing information and they pay attention to relationships. So they go beyond uh, the, the idea of analyzing existing content to generating new content. And so large language models are this subset of transformers. And OpenAI's ChatGPT first came out in 2018 and 2019. The ChatGTP was actually released in 2022. The key takeaway for us here, Matt, is that the human-to-machine interface feels very, very human. So, look, AI is only good as the data and information it has access to. And um, there are training models that go with that. But there are competitors, some very significant competitors. And um, enter Google Bard. Yes, the Bard of Avalon. That's what it's named after. And the main difference, for instance, between a chat GPT and Google Bard is the data source. Chat GTP is using a finite data source. Google Bard is designed to continually draw information from the Internet. So we're at the, at the beginning of a very unique time for us, which creates a conundrum for many of us. By the way, there's all, all kinds of others out there. Hypotenuse AI, ChatSonic, Photomath. You take a picture of a, an equation, Photomath will solve it for you. So this is starting to become a very, very interesting time for humans and machines. Yeah, and I guess a lot of the headlines that we've seen sort of crop up in the last six months is how... Uh, this is kind of affecting the world in, in, of modern work. Um, obviously, like writing people's emails, um, summing up meetings for you and allowing you to skip them, uh, making you PowerPoints, just all of this kind of stuff, really, really changing people's nine to five work. And obviously, you know, myself as a journalist, um, I can't help but, you know, worry about the future of my career when chat GPT and others can write <laughs> an, an immaculate uh, a thousand word article in seconds. So, and obviously, you know, that, that'll be worse for other career paths as well, like devaluing higher level skills, like, you know, being able to write code and stuff like that. Um, is this the death of white collar jobs? Um, no. You know, look, popular AI generated content includes things like writing code and product descriptions and blog posts, email drafts, transcripts. Meetings and podcasts, real useful there if you think about it, being able to transcribe that. Simple explanation of complex topics, law briefs, and so on. Back to the passing the American bar exam. There have been versions of this for a while, though. Think the there was a, a, an application called Textio, and it did language analysis for job posting. And it's been around for a long time, and we started to use it in a very productive way. The notion that we're talking about here, though, has gotten deeper and more extensive. So a couple of examples. Microsoft just released Copilot, which can automatically generate emails, Word docs, and PowerPoint decks um, and pull relevant points from a transcript among Microsoft Teams. A lot of people think of it as the new version of Clippy. Do you remember Clippy? Um, we all hated Clippy. But apparently, you know, Microsoft has got this new level of Copilot, which is going to be exactly what they're calling it, this support system within the Office uh, 365 environment. It's a good idea if it works the way they suggest it will. There's another one, Hypotenuse AI, which can take an outline you give it an outline, it'll write a blog post and then give you an opportunity to fill it in. So I think of it as useful for seeding ideas. It can also review content for you. Does it create the final output? It could, but 
it also gives you an opportunity to interact in a way when you're looking to generate idea, generative AI. Jobs that are most risk are those who specialize in retrieving or analyzing information without much interpretation. So for a journalist like you, there are huge benefits that can come with that. You get these writing assistants that can help you get your work done faster and you can produce content in less time. But it does come with issues of higher expectations of producing work at a quicker rate and creating a problem of burnout. I think about the potential that content could also, that's being used, could also be created. So there's a downside here. There's a real possibility that you have this perpetual motion machine that's starting to generate content for the internet, which is in turn used to generate content. And you get the idea, you get this flywheel effect. So um, there's huge potential though to create content in various professions. What if generative AI wrote our laws? Would that eliminate lobbyists? I don't know. In education, for instance, um, we often hear that there's potential to cheat, but it could actually deepen learning because generative AI can interact perhaps with a historical figure and embed understanding of technology into learning process. It could create not only the, the interaction from a historical figure, but also maybe create um, multimodal AI videos and um, images to go with it. So to prevent cheating, teachers may actually have to ask students to require subjective examples or create projects and storyboards. That's good for the student and the teacher. So it could be very useful in, those, in, in that regard. By the way, speaking of imagery, there have been big moves in the area of that when it comes to generative AI as well, Dolly, Stable, Midjourney. Adobe, I live in, in Las Vegas, please don't hold it against me. <laughs> Adobe just announced their Firefly here yesterday. So think about generating images in Photoshop and Illustrator. So just like your concern around the journalism, these tools generate AI, uh, use generative AI to create images based on text descriptions. And artists have expressed the same conundrum as you raise here, Matt. So there's a lot of pros and cons in this environment. But if I think back to the fact that, you know, we've gone through this as humans and all we're really doing is creating a, a more machine to human interface, none of us really know what the next step is. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I definitely think some of the things that you've just talked about there have really resonated for a lot of people, especially people in the world of work right now. And I think some of the trends that we've seen come out in the workplace since COVID, things like quiet quitting, employee apathy. These could all be changed with generative AI, maybe taking so some of the load off of them as well. Um, so could it employing uh, AI-friendly culture in the workplace solve some of those problems that I just talked about? You know, in our media trends report, we talk about that a little bit in terms of, okay. of skilling as an example. But it's a it's an interesting conversation that we're having in the HR discipline right now. Developing AI, um, cracking the HR data, it requires a data-centric approach to technology and methodology, and then use the conversational interfaces, making it accessible. So we're at that point where we can see the use of it to protect the next wave of skills, uh, as an example. A lot of people are saying, okay, I I need, I know, uh, I need to upskill or reskill, but what about skills I haven't even thought about? So being able to use AI in that flywheel effect has some impact there. 
In the case of HR, for instance, an organization could apply to operate purely against the walls of policy and vision and values. So if you think about what I talked about when it came to creating a, a domain, uh, a finite domain which AI could use, think about that from a policies perspective in HR. Now I can use the generative con, uh, contract with that AI chatbot to query against this finite data set in a way that is meaningful. That's a useful thing for HR. AI can help examples of AI helping like the automotive industry. I'm, automotive is going through this huge transformation around battery technology and autonomous driving, learning content. Those skills are changing. AI can help the industry identify what those are and who may have those translatable skills. And the ability to make intelligent recommendations from big data is not the same as this generative stuff. So a lot of times HR vendors will talk about AI as if they're one thing and they're not. So one of the things that I think about back from the research was in a recent telemobility study that my Cornerstone People Research Lab did in conjunction with Lighthouse Advisory Group, found that employees are 80% more likely to prefer tech as their first option before conversing with a manager. So imagine getting career advice from a chatbot. Uh, I, I keep thinking, I'm sorry, Dave, I can't let you do that. But seriously, the opportunity in that setting is huge. And they can ask simple questions around how many sick days do I get? How do I request leave? What if I have a, a complex and sensitive question around what's the process for requesting a pay rise or I've got an issue with a coworker? We can use generative HI in... Um, uh, HR in a way that is very, very, very useful. So look, there have been a lot of models that predict attrition for a variety of reasons, but what if you use AI for sentiment analysis? You're able to dig into your Slack or your Teams or whatever and get a feel around those data sources as well. A lot of opportunity for us to use it to prevent that quiet quitting, to get out ahead. I guess I'd say we have an open question for us to ponder here, Matt. What if generative AI is able to produce the stronger, more valid content, more reliable? Meanwhile, the content generated by the human hand is construed as much less trustworthy. I don't think that's going to happen, but we could use generative AI to test ourselves against that construct. Nobody knows the answer yet, but it's a very, very interesting time for all of us as humans and in the HR world very, very useful use cases around using uh, generative AI and as a way to augment and uh, give employees a sense of empowerment, if you will, which is where the quiet quitting comes from. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, I think we've seen, you, you know, quite big strides, even very recently with, uh, I think Midjourney can uh, create hands now in art and stuff like that. And we've seen ChatGPT learn how to, for instance, you ask it to write a poem about two different celebrities. One's done something bad, one hasn't. It'll write a poem about one and not the other. It, these things are like starting to learn and um, fix some of their actions that people have struggled with accepting in the past. Um, looking kind of forward over the next five or ten years or so, what other changes do you see uh, and what other strides do you see this generative AI really making? <laughs> Five years, that's a long time. Um, it is a long time, yeah. I mean, you know, look, uh, what I see is I, I see there's this 
there's a pushback here. Um, there's some, uh, there are some folks out there that are suggesting that maybe this is moving too quickly. And, and think about it. One of the big issues for us um, as, as humans is how fast can we consume the next generation of technology? I think for the next year or two years in particular, you're going to see a little bit of that dissonance become a part of the conversation. But that's normal for any technology adoption. So what I predict, and I, I try very hard not to predict because I always think about the person in 2015 who predicted that privacy wouldn't be an issue and look where we are today. I, I think what you're going to see is you're going to see us settle on good use cases for their tools and for the tools themselves. And I'll give you a really good example. Um, when it came to big data, we used to worry that we were going to be overwhelmed by big data or that the predictive analytics were going to lead us down the path. And what we've, what we've learned to do with all this is to use it directionally, but we still need to make the decision. And that then became the new skill set, using data to make good decisions. And that was the big issue five years ago. So... I think you're going to see uh, this get faster and faster and more and more clean when it comes to the machine and human interface. But at the end of the day, all it does is level up and free us up from some of the more mundane things to do things that are interesting. I think of the future in a very positive way. And I, I see this as a really good tool set as long as we're mindful that it is a tool set and we still need to think through what we're being presented with and make a decision in context. Very well said. Very, very well said, Mike. Thank you so much for joining us on today's episode. I really do appreciate you coming on. It's a great topic. Thanks for having me. And thank you to everyone who listened as well. We hope you took a lot away from today's podcast, but for further information on what we talked about, please head on over to cornerstoneondemand.com. We'll be back next week with another episode in our podcast series, but until then... Make sure you subscribe to this podcast on all major platforms. Follow the conversation on our socials at EM360Tech on Twitter and LinkedIn. And for more great daily content, please head on over to EM360Tech.com.